0: This description is one of the most important descriptions of God for us to understand as Christians, and one of the most important things we want people who aren't Christians to understand. And this description, I would say, is also one of the most famous descriptions of God in the Bible. You know, it's one of those uh, those descriptions of God, an, an attribute of God, that I would say has become so famous that many people don't even know that it came from the Bible, right? And uh, I would also say, perhaps for that reason, it's one of the most misunderstood attributes of God. And John says it two times in our passage today. God is love. Now, that is a, a beautiful description of God, right? God is love. I mean, who, who wouldn't like that? You know, the other attributes of God, some of them can be kind of challenging to us. So, for example, if we think about God's self-existence, that God just is, that that's what he is by his nature to exist, that challenges some of our assumptions about reality. And when we think about God as our creator, you know, that might challenge some of our assumptions about our own identity. And if we think about God's goodness, that challenges are assumptions about morality. But God is love. You know, I mean, that, that sounds pretty nice. I mean, who wouldn't like that, right? So even if somebody doesn't really like Christianity, maybe they don't like the Bible. Maybe they don't even like the idea of God. But if you say God is love, well, that's pretty easy to accept. And I think it's easy to accept in part because that, that statement, that idea, is kind of flexible on its own, Right? So if you don't have any context, those words can kind of mean anything anyone wants them to mean. right? God is love. Just that phrase, totally by itself, is vague enough to kind of let God be whatever we want him to be. But if we'll really pay attention to what John is telling us here, I think we're going to find that this, this statement is much more powerful and beautiful than that kind of vague idea that we sometimes have. But I also think we're going to find that the truth Of this statement, when it's properly understood, will lift us up and encourage us and empower us far more than we would dare hope on our own. So I want to approach this text today, and especially those words, God is love, by considering that statement in three different ways, kind of from three different angles, we might say. So we're going to think about this statement first from the with the idea that God is love. Then we want to think about the fact that God is love love, and then we'll consider that God is love. Okay, so God is love, God is love, and God is love. So first of all, God is love. Now, one of the big temptations for modern people, especially, I think, is to flip these words around. So instead of saying God is love, they might say love is God. Now, in some ways, that kind of seems sort of logical, right? If God is love, well, then love must be God. It's just, you know, kind of uh, a logical rule. But John is not trying to make a logical point about God. That's not what he's saying here. So he's not saying God is love in the same way that we would say A equals B, right? That's not what he means. So if we flip this around, if we say love is God, we're saying something very different than God is love. So let's think about that for a second. Let's, let's flip it around and consider what that means. If we say love is God, what does that mean? Well, first of all, that makes God not into a concrete being that is like someone who is distinct, but really into something abstract. A kind of, we might say, an impersonal force uh, behind the universe or maybe a force that's kind of infused within the universe. Some people might even say kind of one with the universe itself. So if love is God... That means that the, the abstract concept of love becomes the most important thing in the universe. I mean, I think that's what most people mean by it, right? So on one hand, it makes God kind of abstract. And on the other hand, it says that love is the most important thing. So usually if people say love is God, what they really mean is love is the most important thing that exists. There is nothing more important than love. But see, if we say that, then the question is, well, what is love? What, what do we mean by love? If love is the most important thing in the universe, we would probably want to know what it is, right? But on this understanding, I mean, love can become almost anything. We might mean, you know, maybe romantic love or maybe sexual love or maybe family love or like sibling love or friend love or maybe just the the feeling or the emotion of love. So it's not really clear what we're talking about. If I say love is God, there's a lot of questions that come up, right? And so we may feel like we're saying something really profound when we say love is God. But we're actually making, I think, both the concept of love and the concept of God less clear. Both of them become less clear. But if we say God is love, that actually reveals a lot about God and a lot about love. So let's think about that. If we say love is God, that puts the idea of love at the center. And then we work our way out right? And that's why things become unclear because we're trying to work from something abstract, something not clear to something that is more concrete. But if we say God is love as John does, then God becomes the center of love. God himself becomes the foundation of love, which makes things clear because we're able to move from something that is concrete, which helps us better understand something that is abstract. So the biblical statement that that God is love, we might say is kind of a, a theological telescope, right? Now, I mean, most of us may not do this now. Maybe you haven't really played with a telescope, but maybe when you were a kid. I mean, what's one of the first things you do? You take the telescope and you turn it the opposite direction, right? You want to see what happens when you look through the other end. And what you find out is that if you look through the telescope through the correct end, through the small end and the big ends on the other side, then things that are far away become clear. You can start seeing them. But if you flip it around and look through the big end, things that are even right next to you look like they're really far away. Right? So you have to look through the telescope the right direction if you really want to understand it or, or see things properly. And that's exactly what this statement, God is love, is. It's sort of a theological telescope. So if you look through this, this statement through God, the God end, then you see what love really is. But if you try to start with the love end, both love and God, just everything becomes confused. Okay, So we really need to make sure we're looking through this the right direction. And that's why we say God is love. Okay, so we've seen that. God is love, not love is God. But next we need to see that God is love. Now, what does it mean to say that God is love? When John says God is love, basically he's telling us that love is God's eternal essence. Okay, in other words, love is as essential to God's nature as his self existence. It is as essential to God as it is essential to God that he exists of his own being, of his own nature. So just, you know, God did not begin to exist. That's very important. He has always existed. But just like he didn't begin to exist, God also did not begin to love, but has always been in what we might call a state of love. He has always been in a loving relationship, a loving existence. And, And that raises the question, how could that be? How could God have been in a state of love before anything else was even created? How could God have been in a state of love if only God existed? Now, sometimes I've heard it said that God created the universe because he was lonely. I don't know. Maybe you've seen this somewhere. I've seen it probably like on Facebook. You see a lot see a lot of bad theological statements on Facebook, to be totally honest about it. Um, but in any event... Um, Sometimes people will say that God created the universe because he was lonely, but that is not a biblical description of God at all. The Bible in nowhere gives the idea that God was lonely without man. God did not need man or anything else. Biblically speaking, God was completely fulfilled and happy prior to the universe or humanity existing. And even if we had never existed, that would have still been true. Had no other thing ever been created, had God himself been the only thing that existed, okay, if God himself was all that ever existed, he created nothing, God himself, by himself, in himself, would have been joyful and filled with love. And so again, the question is, how can that be? Because love is a relational term, right? Well, if you talk about love, you're talking about a relationship. Real love exists only when someone loves someone else, Right? Sometimes people will say love yourself, and of course we understand what that means, but we understand that's not really like the truest, deepest form of love. Right? Real love exists when one person loves another person. It's a relational term. So how can God's essence be love? And how can God enjoy how can God enjoy the fullest sense of love for all eternity prior to creating anything? And the Bible answers this question. By showing us that God is triune, that God is a trinity, okay? So to say that God is triune, that's a really big question. It's one of those statements that a lot of people are like, I don't really understand what that means. Maybe just the word itself, what does it mean to say God is trinity? I don't really understand that word. But even when we say it, it's just really confusing, okay? And I can't begin to go into Trinitarian theology this morning. That is a very deep discussion. But in the most basic sense, To say that God is triune means that there is one God who exists in three persons, those three persons being the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Athanasian Creed, um, one of the very early Christian creeds, puts it this way. The person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit, still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. Now, that last sentence may get a little, you know, again, theological, maybe a little bit confusing. So in very simple terms, when we talk about the Trinity, what we mean is that within God, there is one substance with three persons. Or we might say, in the most simplest of terms, at the risk of oversimplifying perhaps, there is one what and three who's. Okay, one what and three who's. There's one substance, three persons. And that is the God of the Bible. We might say, this is the way in which God is God. And what that means, I mean, think about that. Think about what that means for a second. What that means is that from all eternity, God has shared the truest, deepest form of love within his own being. By his nature, he has eternally experienced love from all eternity God has existed perfectly complete and fulfilled in this fellowship of love which we call the trinity and that is why John can say that God is love because part of God's very nature his essential essence is to exist in this loving fellowship of the trinity So even if no human ever existed, if the universe never existed, if there were no angels or other spiritual beings, God would still exist and still enjoy the fullest sense of love in himself. Because God is love. But you see, here's the amazing thing about that. So you think about this God who has eternally existed in a state of love, completely fulfilled completely filled with love in his own being. The amazing story of the Bible is that God incredibly has chosen to share that love with his creation. That he created us so that we could enjoy his love. He didn't create us for his joy. Not that he doesn't get joy from us, but that's not, he didn't need us. We needed him. And he created us so that he could share that love with us. He created us and has chosen to share that love with us. That is incredible. And that brings us to our third point. God is love. Okay, so we've seen that God is love. That God is the center. God's the starting point of love. You have to start there. We've seen that God is love. right? That That's his essential essence. It's, it's part of who he is by his nature. But we also need to understand that God is love. That is that God shows us what love really is. Now this is such an important conversation in modern times. Because you have so many conversations out there about, you know, love, you know, what love is. People talk about, you know, love is love and anything. Basically, if I call it love, that makes it love. And there's all sorts of concepts out there about about what love is. And so if we really want to know what love is, biblically, we have to see what God reveals about love. If we don't look at God, we will not understand love. So we have to see what does God show us? Because God himself is essentially love. Because he's the foundation and the source of all love, only God can really show us what love is about. And going back to the telescope analogy, right? If we want to understand love, we have to look through God, or we won't understand it. So the question is when we look at love through the lens of God, when we see it through that, that description that John gave us, God is love, when we look in that direction, what do we see? And basically, the answer in the Bible is this we see the cross, we see Jesus. We see the gospel, right? We most clearly see and understand God's love and thus love itself through what God has done through Jesus Christ. Now, this, is, I mean, this is all throughout the Bible, especially the New Testament. We saw it in verse 10 of our reading today. Uh, we see it in Romans 5 and verse 8. that says, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus famously said in John 15 and verse 13, greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Of course, referring to himself and what he was going to do. So you see, it's in the act of sending Jesus to die for us. It is in the gospel that God most clearly reveals his deep love for us and shows us what love is really all about. And so I'd like to briefly highlight here Uh, Three three things Jesus' sacrifice shows us about genuine love. Okay, so we see that the cross and Jesus show us what God's love is really about. But what do we see there? What do we learn about love when we look at the gospel, when we look at what Jesus has done for us? Well, first of all, we see that God's love through Jesus, it shows us that real love is holy. Okay, real love is holy. Now, I I think a lot of people today assume that if we say God is love, That basically, that kind of means God will just tolerate anything that we do, right? He'll tolerate sin. And honestly, it kind of removes the idea of sin. It kind of just says there really isn't anything really all that bad because God loves us. And so he'll just kind of let everything go. But on the contrary, the cross shows that God's love is deeply concerned with our holiness, deeply concerned with what is good and what is right. I mean, why did God send Jesus to die on the cross? Why does that mean that God loves us? Right? If somebody just dies, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's anything about love going on. People die sometimes. So why, why does Jesus dying on the cross show us God's love? Well, it shows us that precisely because he came to forgive us of our sin through the cross. It's precisely because he was concerned for what is good and righteous that he died on the cross. So the cross, rather than showing that God, God's love overlooks sin, actually it shows how serious sin is to God. It shows the kind of punishment that sin deserves and it shows how committed God is to rooting sin out of his creation and out of our lives, right? So genuine love does not ignore sin. Genuine love, real love seeks holiness and it seeks righteousness. That is real, genuine love. If love does not have any concern for holiness, any concern for righteousness, that is not genuine love from what we see from God. Second of all, God's love through Jesus shows us that real love is selfless. Now, if you think about most most human experience of love, I think most of it's tainted by selfishness, right? I mean, we're kind of interested in what we're going to get out of it. Generally speaking, we love things that we think are lovable, things that bring us some kind of benefit, right? I mean, a man usually falls in love with a woman. Why? Well, because first he's like, hey, she's really pretty and I want to be around her. She makes me happy. How many people talk about it that way? I want to be with this person because they make me happy. That's what we look for. That's where it starts. Probably, I would say the closest we can get to a totally unselfish love is probably with our children. But even then, we don't experience it. Because, you know, often, uh, why do we start to want kids? Well, because we think about security. We think about our future. We think about the joy that they'll bring us. That's kind of where it begins. And also, think about how many parents have disowned their children Because they felt like the child brought the family shame. Right? So even with our children, we don't really experience that full unselfishness. But God's love is totally different. We have absolutely, I mean, we need to understand this. We have absolutely nothing we can offer God. Nothing. Anything we give God, he doesn't need from us. Nothing. He needs nothing from us at all. And then on top of that, so much of our lives are filled with sin, with shame, with evil, And yet God has chosen to love us so deeply that he was willing to give his only son so our sin could be removed and we could have a relationship with him. In other words, God has genuinely loved the unlovely without any concern for what he can get out of it. That is God's love that we see through the cross. That is perfect love. It is love that is selfless. But on the flip side of that, God's love through Jesus shows us that real love seeks the well-being or the welfare of the one being loved. That is to say, real love is not only not focused on self, but is actively focused on the other person and their well-being. So uh, J.I. Packer, he put it this way, Those who truly love are only happy when those whom they love are truly happy also. Now, think, think about that again. Those who truly love are only happy When those whom they love are truly happy, also. You know, I I can think about with Sarah. If Sarah is going through some serious hardship, something really, really bad that's causing her a lot of suffering, can I be happy at that same time? Can I look at Sarah and just be like, hey, I'm having a great day. It's a wonderful day. While Sarah's over here suffering and crying and, and going through some sort of serious trouble? Of course not. And why? Because I love her. That's why. And that's what we see in God's love as well, right? And that's actually what we see in the best marriages. I mean, if you think about the best marriage, the best marriage is going to be the one where both parties delight in each other and actually are seeking the benefit and the welfare of the other person. Because if, you're, if both people in the marriage find joy in making their spouse joyful, we're well, going to have a marriage filled with joy. But if you're only looking out for me, you're going to have a marriage filled with selfishness. And see, that's what we see in God's love through Jesus, that this perfect love, only It perfectly seeks our well-being. Even though we have absolutely nothing to offer God, he needs nothing from us. Nevertheless, he loves us and actually finds real joy in blessing us. He finds us to be so important, so valuable. He so desires our welfare that he is willing to send Jesus to die for us so that we can enjoy him. That is what genuine love looks like. It looks like selflessly giving ourselves to another and seeking their welfare above our own to the point that we are willing to sacrifice and even suffer for their benefit. And the amazing message of the gospel is that God has shown this love to us. I mean, that famous passage, John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That love that has been shared between Father, Son, and Spirit throughout eternity has always been this perfect love of mutual self-giving, mutual blessing, mutual joy. And amazingly, almost unbelievably, God decided out of his love to share that love with us. This love that God has enjoyed in himself for all eternity, he now invites us to enter into and to enjoy for eternity through Jesus Christ. And perhaps even more amazingly than that, even more unbelievably, God not only wants to share that with us, but God has voluntarily connected his ultimate happiness with our own. God is so concerned for our welfare that he is willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice to make it possible for us. Now, before we close, I want to think a bit about what that means for us okay because God's love sometimes we say well God is love and it kind of makes us feel sort of happy but it's sort of just like this platitude and it gives us warm warm fuzzies on Sundays but then you know it doesn't really do anything and so it it needs to actually mean something for us so the question is what does it mean I mean the truth of God's love for us it's powerful and it can have a powerful impact on our daily lives so let's think just uh, quickly about two things that it can mean for our daily lives first of all God's love means that you are deeply loved by the creator of the universe. The God who made everything, the God who is the foundation of reality itself, personally loves you. If you don't believe me, listen to how Paul says it in Galatians 2 and verse 20. He says, Jesus loved me and gave himself for me it doesn't say for just for us but for me now of course it's true that god loves humans generally but god's love is not only for humans generally but for individual people god personally loves you and wants you to enjoy fellowship with him and he has made this possible through jesus you know in this world you know our society maybe your coworkers sometimes your own family may look at you and say in some form or fashion you are nothing Right? You're worthless. And, and like I said, sometimes it's direct. Sometimes they'll just say that straight out. But sometimes they just say it indirectly. They, they say things that make us feel worthless. But to God, you are precious enough that he did not withhold even his own son. You know, the world, the world says you earn their love for your performance. You earn their love by what you do, by what you accomplish. But God says, no, he gives it freely out of his own love. You don't earn it, he gives it freely, and we accept it through faith. Okay, so that's the first thing it means for us. The second thing, though, it means is that especially for the Christian, every single thing that happens to us, I want you to hear this and listen to this well, okay? Every single thing that happens to us is an expression of God's love for us. If it is true that God loves us deeply, And if it is true that he is seeking our welfare and our joy because his own joy is tied with ours, then that means that he only allows things to happen to us that he knows are working out for our joy. He has placed us in our respective times, our respective places, and has allowed every event of our lives out of nothing other than his love for us. Now, the thing is, that's really easy to say when life's going well, right? When everything's happy, when I'm rich and I'm healthy and my relationships are blessed and all that, that's easy to say. But what about when life becomes hard, right? What about when I lose everything? What about when I lose all my money? I lose my job. Everything's lost. What happens then? What happens when, you know, I get sick and I get some illness and maybe I'm even on deathbed? What happens when I lose all those relationships that are important, important to me? What about then? How can I really believe that? How can I believe that? I mean, how can I really believe that God, if he loves me, would allow that kind of a thing to happen to me? That's been one of the longest standing questions throughout human history. But think about it like this. You know, I remember when Sarah and I first took Cambria to the doctor for her childhood vaccines. You know, that was really hard to do. Because this was my first child. And this was not even just a boy. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, maybe I have a little bit of bias to the girls, right? <laughs> okay, but, but this is my, my daughter, my cute, sweet little daughter, who I loved, and I know she's about to experience this pain of the shot going into her leg. And how could I just sit there and watch that? How could I just sit there and watch the doctor jam a needle into her leg, knowing that's going to hurt her? Why would I do that? Because I love her. That's why, right? The reason I drove her to the doctor and took her there and was there with her is because I love her. I knew that, that yeah, in that moment, it would bring pain. But in the end, it would be for her welfare and for her joy. And see, that's how it is for us through Christ. If you are in Christ, you have entered into a fellowship with God. And you can be certain that he loves you as a child. And so that anything he allows, any hardship is ultimately for your good. And that's what we're told in Romans eight twenty eight. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for our good. Every loss every sickness, every suffering, all of it through Jesus is somehow working out in the end what will only increase our joy. That is God's promise to every one of his people, to every Christian. That is his promise. Now think about what that means for a second though. Do you see how silly it is to grumble and complain about all our circumstances in life if that's true? Do you see how silly it is to allow our hearts to be filled with anxiety and fear and worry? Do you see how silly it is to fix our hearts? Our, I mean, our deepest longings, our deepest desires, on something other than God, who has given us this deep love? Do you see how shallow it is to let distractions, to let you know YouTube and Facebook and whatever, keep you from pursuing this God who loves you deeply? This kind of love is worth everything that I have. It demands everything that I have. But let's not forget what John also says. It's not just about me. It also means something for our love for other people. If we have experienced this deep deep love of God, this deep eternal love of God, how can I do anything but show that love to other people? God is love. And he has poured out that infinite love on me and Jesus. So what can I do but love other people? If we've experienced that love, how can we not also love others? But again, that love isn't just an emotion. It's not just a happy feeling. It's a commitment. It's the kind of love that we see in Jesus Christ. It's that love that cares about holiness. That love that is selfless. That love that looks out for the good and the welfare of the other person. That's the love that we're supposed to have. And it's a commitment to that, a commitment to the good of my brother and sister, a commitment to making sacrifices for their good, a commitment to doing what isn't easy so that they can be blessed. And that's an important question for us. When, when was the last time you made a decision with the love of your brothers and sisters of Christ in mind? When was the last time you made a decision, you know, not out of what you thought was good for you, but out of what was good for your brothers and sisters, or really just for anybody, <laughs> just your brothers and sisters, any other person, when was the last time you were like, I'm making this decision purely because it's going to bless them? You see, God's love is intensely practical. And if we've really experienced it, it's going to change, not just our hearts in some sort of vague way, but it's going to tr- uh, change the way we treat others and especially our spiritual family. But you see, that can only happen When we have truly tasted the love of God in Christ, God's love in Christ is deep, it is rich, it is life changing, and we can experience it through Jesus. Now, I think you guys know um, every Monday I pray for every individual at this church um, personally. And almost every time that I pray, I include the words of Ephesians 3 uh, verses 16 through 19. Because really, that's my desire for everyone here. That's that's what I really want for everyone here. I want you to be able to understand the immeasurable love of Christ for you, because that is what will change your life. So rather than closing with uh, just my own prayer, I'd like to conclude today's lesson with that prayer from Ephesians uh, chapter 3. And we're going to be reading verses actually 14 through 20. We'll kind of read the whole thing here, and that'll close out our lesson today. Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 14 through 20. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith,